pick up today in Isaiah 50, but um, but it's important. I, I, I know this can be redundant, but I want to kind of keep setting the stage for where we are because we're in a particularly important section of Isaiah that also can be a little bit um, uh, difficult to, to put together. So if, if we go all the way back 10 chapters and go to Isaiah 40, you, you might remember that Isaiah 40 is this great um, explanation of, of how God is majestic, he's sovereign, he's over the heavens and the earth, you know, the, the, the oceans are just sort of a drop in the bucket for the Lord, who has measured out uh, the, 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 you know, the stars and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's this grand, grand language in Isaiah 40 of the greatness of God. But, but actually, all of that serves a particular purpose, and the purpose is to say, because God is in control over all things, and because He is great and He is sovereign, you can be confident that He'll actually do whatever He says He's going to do. That, that's really the, it's, it's not just a meditation on the greatness of God, although that, that serves its own purpose. It's really got an application to it, and the application is, so you know if He says something, uh, it's going to actually happen. And that's how Isaiah 40 ends with, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So if he said it, you can count on it because of the greatness of God. And there's no obstacle that's going to stand in his way or, or anything that's going to interfere uh, with him carrying out his plans. Now, then in Isaiah 41, the, it gets a little bit more specific because then what we find out is that God, this God who will accomplish whatever he says, so you need to really pay attention, is, is going to judge the whole earth. But in the midst of that judgment, he's going to, there is a kind of carve-out because there are his people, and he refers to them there using the term servant. Also the term Israel uses a couple other terms as well. But the point is they're going to be able to withstand the judgment. And so all that's in the context of Isaiah 41. Then you get into these servant songs. And the servant songs, I've mentioned it before, but just to kind of, for the sake of uh, review, there are four of them, and the the first one is in Isaiah 42, and then and then we have a pause, uh, and we don't get another one until Isaiah 49, which is what we just did last week. Now, the 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 servant songs follow a similar pattern. They all start with information about the servant or, or a revelation about the servant, and then a commentary, um, and so that's kind of easy to follow. But in between, that space in between is really important, between 42 and 49, because um, what 42 tells you is that whatever God's going to accomplish in rescuing his people through the coming uh, worldwide judgment, he's going to do through this servant, the singular servant. And in 43 through 49, or through 48, end of 48, um, what we see is that... Uh, how this is going to play out, particularly for, for Israel at the time that Isaiah is preaching, for the people who are the descendants of those residents of Jerusalem. And basically, the way it plays out in 43 through 48 is that uh, the Lord's going to take those people, they're going to Babylon, but after some time in Babylon, um, Cyrus is going to be raised up, who's going to be a servant of the Lord, and Cyrus is going to allow them to physically return to their land. Now, that's not going to happen for uh, several hundred years. 
and Isaiah's, you know, doesn't really give the specifics of the time frame, but it's it's going to be a while because Babylon needs to be destroyed first, and that's what happens. Cyrus destroys Babylon with the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. So, so that's kind of the narrow answer to their question, but the thing that we realized in 42 is not only is the servant going to be the focal point, but maybe even more importantly for, for Isaiah's congregation, um, the, the, the real restoration, the, the kind of capital R restoration, what Isaiah refers to as a second exodus, that is going to be not only physical, but also it's going to involve total spiritual transformation. So that helps us because I mentioned this a lot when we were in that section of, of 43 through 48. Um, what you see in the rest of your Old Testament is that exactly as Isaiah says, Cyrus does allow the people to return physically. But the issue in Ezra and Nehemiah, when the people return physically, in, in exact fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, when the people return physically, the question that you should be asking, if you have like your Isaiah glasses on when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, is you should be saying, okay, this is the physical return, that's great. The Lord fulfilled His promise to a T. But, um, but what about the spiritual part? And and you go through Ezra and Nehemiah and you ask that question and you get a really interesting series of answers because while there are some spiritual revivals in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're temporary. And and the book or books end with both Ezra and Nehemiah praying to the Lord and essentially saying. You know, you fulfilled your promises. You did everything you said you were going to do through the prophet Isaiah. And then Jeremiah also contributes to that prophecy. But you did everything you said you were going to do. But the people really aren't transformed. So you get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah and like part one of the second exodus has happened. But not part two, which is the more important part where God pours out his spirit on his people. And they, they're changed um, in, on the inside. So So that's... 43 through 48. Now you get into 49, which is where we were last week. And in 49, it's our second servant song. And we see that this is for the whole world. It's this global um, this global ministry of, of the servant. And, um, and, and this servant is, is interesting because it's, it's almost like he gets to the end and it looks like things are a failure, but... Um, actually, the Lord's going to use him as a light to the nations. And, you know, for us, it's a little bit easier to put those pieces together because we have the New Testament revelation. And so we looked up a couple of those New Testament passages. And what this is going to mean is it's going to mean the restoration of Israel when this servant actually comes. So that's getting us all the way through 49, just by way of review to set up chapter 50. Um, are there Are there questions that you have or comments or Need for clarification at this point. That was a, a whirlwind tour. Anything particular? All right. So we'll, we'll charge in then to 50, which is the third of our four servant songs. And here's something interesting about this. Just to note, um, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to read the commentary for it. It actually starts in verse 4 of chapter 50. Um. Interestingly enough, so the big servant song and the one that you're probably most familiar with because it's quoted the most and, and we read from it 
actually we go back to Isaiah and read from it a lot, which is Isaiah uh, 52 into 53. Um, but actually, if you, if you bracket that off as its own kind of magnum opus, which it is, and you look at the first three, 50, this one that we're about to look at, is the one that's quoted from the most in the New Testament. So again, not 53 is the most. 53 is the big one. But of the first three, uh, 50 is highly significant um, in, in the minds of the, of the New Testament writers under the inspiration of, of God's Holy Spirit. Well, uh, let's pick up. And um, the, the first three verses, by the way, are, are kind of just a, really a continuation of chapter 49 and the situation that Israel is going to be in of, of total exile. And in this case, the imagery that's used is this divorce that's taken place. Now, let's pick up in verse 4. This is the song. And then verses 10 and 11 give the commentary on the song or the, or the you know, implications or whatever application of the song. All right, I'm just going to read it and then we'll go back through it a little more carefully. Isaiah 50 verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I... Know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And then I'll just read the commentary section in 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the face of his servant? Or voice, sorry, the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. All right, so we'll get to the commentary part, but let's start with the beginning. Uh, so, oops. What are the two characteristics? We'll start with the first one. What's the first characteristic of this servant in Isaiah 50? What is it that he what is it that he does? Or what is it that he's that is uh, that the, that Isaiah fo focuses our attention on in these first couple of verses of description? Particularly uh, a taut tongue and ears. Yeah, good, exactly. So the, the first thing to know about this servant, and, and, and I can go through and help try to um, connect some of the dots with the New Testament passages. Like I said, this is the most quoted of the servant songs, bracketing off 53. Um, yeah, the, the first thing to note about the servant is that the, the primary way that he does his work is is by his speaking because what he says comes directly from God. And so ultimately his is a is a ministry of the word. Um, now now there's there's more to it than that. The reason why his word is so uh, 
it does so much work, why his word is so effective, is because he's also um, just repeating, he's giving God's words. So he's essentially, he's got the words of, of Yahweh himself, and this is why it goes back and forth talking about his ears and, and, and his words, what he says. Now, um, this kind of, this hits on something uh, that is a, a, a big theme of the Old Testament. And maybe it's worth it just to take a minute and see this. Um, I, I can't remember whether we've looked at this before, but I don't think we have. Um, if, you, if you turn just briefly to Deuteronomy 18, it's a very, very important text in Deuteronomy. Really, really one of the most important texts in the Pentateuch. Because... In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is, um, is, is receiving a prophecy, a promise from the Lord about the time after his own death. So Moses, you know, Deuteronomy is, is preached um, as they're about to enter the land. And so a lot of it is review, but it's review aimed at the future and about what Israel is going to do. And a lot of the review and a lot of the aiming at the future has to do particularly with the time after Moses is gone. Because Moses has had such a central role in the life of God's people. He's been the mediator, really, between God and the people and, and the spokesman for God among the people. So this critical role, and in, in a sense, you know, when Moses is gone, how do we, how, how do we hear from God at all um, might be the question that some we're asking. So it's kind of, you know, it, this is, there's no perfect analogy here, but it's almost like, you know, if you knew, if you knew that today was the last day you'd ever be able to see or hear uh, the, the scriptures, you know, where would that leave you? Or what questions would you have? It's, it's, it's a little bit like that. I mean, God's word is, is sort of being taken away. Well, well, what, what God says is this um, in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18. Moses is speaking for the Lord, and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his fire, great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. And so Moses is the you here, a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. And I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And then it goes on to basically say, you know, if someone rises up and says that he's the prophet like Moses, here's, you know, here's how you figure out whether he's telling the truth or not. But the point is this, that you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, after Moses is taken off the scene, and 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 what you're looking for, if you're if you're one of God's people in the nation of Israel, what you're looking for is someone who is hearing God's word directly and then speaking it to the people, because that's what a prophet is. If you go all the way back, um, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this trail, but if you go all the way back to Exodus seven. Where, where prophecy is, is essentially defined or illustrated by the Lord, 
what you see is what a prophet does is he hears what God says and then he speaks it to the people. And it's that simple. There's nothing really too um, complicated about it. It's just that, you know, it's rare. So, so um, all that to say, you get to the end of Deuteronomy, you're looking for the one, the one like Moses who spoke, who speaks with God. And God speaks directly to him and speaks right in his ear. And then Moses just speaks it right out to the people. And that's what you want. And, and when you get to Isaiah 50, what you find is that that's exactly the role that this servant of the Lord is going to have among the people. That God's going to raise up a servant and his, his vocation is going to be that he speaks, everything he speaks is God's word. And so everything, and this is this is really different from any other prophet. I mean, Isaiah spoke the word of God as well. Isaiah was a true prophet, but but Isaiah wasn't always on in a sense. It wasn't that everything that Isaiah said was you know a, a prophetic word from God. So you know if you lived in the time of Isaiah and you knew him just as a you know as a friend or whatever, not everything Isaiah said when you were talking to him, was God's word. But, but the prophet like Moses and the prophet of Isaiah 50, the servant of Isaiah 50, is going to be different from that because he wakes up in the morning, as it were, and, and everything that is in his head and everything that comes out of his mouth is, is the word of God. And, and that's different. That's, that's, a, that's a Deuteronomy 18 kind of thing. That is, that is beyond what even the true prophets of Israel, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or, or, or whatever, uh, even what they could claim. They had, they had moments and sermons and, 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 and things they wrote where God directly worked by his Holy Spirit, and he did that in different ways, and we see that played out. But, but this, is, this is the servant who's, you know, it, all his words are, are the word of God. Now, um. Now, what does that do uh, for the people? Well, here's what it says. Um, this is, uh, I'm sustaining with a word, verse 4, him who is weary. And, and so he's going to speak, but he's going to speak. So he, he's going to have this ministry of the word, but the ministry of the word is going to primarily be to those who are um, weary or, or who are, you know, at the end of the rope or something like that. Um, and, and this actually isn't, isn't new either because back in Isaiah 42 in our first servant song, remember the way it was described, he was, uh, it's a bruised reed he will not break and a gently smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So we kind of knew that his ministry was going to be to those who are really hurting. Um, but, but then think about this sort of, Draw the line forward now for a second. We've been we've been going backwards to talk about Deuteronomy 18, but if you if you draw the line forward, what you see is that this is exactly what Jesus says about his own ministry. In fact, he uses this exact language because what he says is, "Come unto me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light." And then, and then furthermore, if you, if you drill down even, even deeper into the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus says, what, for instance, in his 
um, prayer to the Father, I've, he said, I, I've, I've given them your words. I've given them your commands. And, and so it's no surprise then when you go forward, even after the ascension of Jesus into the book of Acts, and, and the prophets say, um, or the, sorry, the apostles say, um, the, the, the prophet, they quote from Deuteronomy 18, and they say the prophet like Moses arose and you killed him. Um, and this was the one that you were supposed to listen to. So, so the, the ministry of the coming servant is characterized first as a ministry of the word, and a ministry of the word in which all that he says from kind of morning to evening is God's word, and a ministry of the word that has particular applicability and particular resonance with those who are weary. You know, again, we could go on about this for a long time, but even if you look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out the Beatitudes, blessed are, what you find is that all of those things, particularly at the beginning, uh, but really throughout, all of those have to do with uh, recognizing, first of all, your um, your need, right? Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because they're the ones who are going to see God. Blessed are those who are meek, because they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And, and so, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So it's, it's almost as if, if we wanted to put it in Isaiah's terms, the prerequisite for being uh, ministered to, by the word of the servant is this understanding of your own need. This, what he calls weariness of soul. So that's going to be, that's, that's number, that's description number one. Description number one is, it's a word ministry to the weary. Description number two, there's actually more space given to this um, in this song, but, um, and it's, you know, maybe a little more surprising, and it starts in verse 6. Description number 2, of course, is that not only is his a word ministry, but it's a, it's a suffering ministry. And we could say it's a suffering ministry that is unjust. Um, so, or undeserved. It's undeserved suffering. Look at the description that we get. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike. So, put, an, put another term in there. Undeserved. And it's voluntary. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. The Lord, But the Lord God, Yahweh, helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Um, we'll go a little further in a minute. But it's suffering that's undeserved. It's suffering that's voluntary. And it's suffering that will ultimately lead to his vindication by God.
So it doesn't ultimately lead to shame. Um, it, it has that element to it while it's ongoing, but in an absolute sense, um, it's not, he's not going to be left ashamed because after he goes through the shameful suffering, he knows that at the end of it, his vindication is at hand. His vindication is near, and his vindication will come from none other than God himself. Now, now I'll say that um, this song sets us up for Isaiah 53, but there are some questions that this song does not answer that Isaiah 53 does answer. So you already know by the end of chapter 50 that the servant is going to suffer. That's not new in Isaiah 53. Um, you also know that he's not going to have deserved it. That's not new in Isaiah 53. You know that he's going to be vindicated. That's not new. But what you don't exactly understand from Isaiah 50 that you get in Isaiah 53 is what the you know what the reason behind it is what what that's actually accomplishing so so there is in Isaiah 53 52 and 53 there is this notion of substitution that you might guess at in Isaiah 50 and certainly for all of us if we have our kind of new testament uh, um, mindset in view we, we can assume that, but, but it's not spelled out. And that's where I think Isaiah 53 makes this really significant contribution. Because in Isaiah 53, what does he say? Surely he himself bore our griefs. You know, we are healed by his, by his stripes. So the, the, the recipients or the beneficiaries of the substitution are spelled out in Isaiah 53 in a way that they're not spelled out in Isaiah 50. But the suffering part, this is, this is the point I'm trying to make, the suffering part in and of itself is, is actually introduced for us um, here in, in Isaiah 50. So, um, anyone, who, uh, anyone who as he is suffering acts as his adversary... The servant says, you know, just wait, you're going to get, I'm going to be vindicated and you're going to just fade away. That's really the point of verse 9. So, we'll come back to that in a minute and look at some of the New Testament references. But let me just press on into verses 10 and 11 with this commentary. This is the, this is the application, particularly for those hearing it for the first time. Um, in Isaiah's day, but it could, it's really to anyone reading it. Um, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because what do we have? Fearing the Lord equals obeying the servant's voice. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So who among you, it fits into this category. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And then he's going to turn it around to those who do something else. Behold, all you who kindle a fire and equip yourselves uh, with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So there's kind of two options that Isaiah puts in front of the readers. 
Option one is that you walk in the light provided by the Lord. And, and what does that mean? He's not talking about physical light, right? He explains it to us. What he means by light is the light of the word of the servant. That, that you know, that there, there's, you can, you can walk by his light, which is, which is how you fear the Lord. Or you can kind of make up your own light and, and, and light your own fire and try to, try to figure things out your own way. However, what that leads to, of course, is, is you're going to end up in torment because of it. And there's a sort of play on, on words there. But, but those are the two basic options. The two basic options are you figure it out for yourself. Walk by the best light that you can muster um, or that someone else has created. Or, or you fear the Lord. And what fearing the Lord means really clearly is... That you listen to the words of his servant. Um, and, and, and in so doing, you receive deliverance from him. Now, um, let's, let's map this forward a little bit into the New Testament. We'll come back because there are a lot of quotations in here. We're not going to look up all the quotations. But, but conceptually, I want to um, show you some, some big features here. So... Um, for instance, uh, when Jesus uh, describes the the work that he's come to do, and I, I know I've I know I've uh, referenced this before in John seventeen. In John seventeen, um, Jesus this uh, uh, he actually sort of divides this prayer up into three categories. One, he talks about himself and his own work. And asks for God to glorify him as he goes to the cross. Then he asks for the disciples at the, that had been around him and a special ministry to them. And then, and then to all of us. And then he prays for all of us. But let's just look at this and see how Jesus conceives of his own, his own work and his own ministry. Um, I'm going to start in verse 3. This is eternal life. This is Jesus praying to the Father. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. How did I glorify you? Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Listen to this in, in light of, in light of um, Isaiah 50. I've given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, Again, there's, there are deep uh, mysteries to this with respect to the Trinity, but if, if we just want to uh, speak in terms of the persons of the Father and the Son, what Jesus is saying is, okay, Father, you gave me your word, and I proclaimed the word to the people that you had given to me, and they believed my what I said which now means that they have you and your salvation and 
and, and you're the one preserving them. So the way it works is, the way it works is, people come to a knowledge of the Father through the words of the Son, which, which he faithfully proclaimed. And, 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 and then as they, as they come to know the Father through the words of the Son, then they, they are the fathers and they receive salvation from the Father. Now look how this plays out for us. I'm going to skip down to verse 20. Because then Jesus goes into this whole long discussion about praying for the apostles. And that's really important. That actually has huge significance for our understanding of the authority of Scripture. But, but I just want to skip down to verse 20. Because look at how he describes us as believers. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, uh, etc. That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as I am one. Now, and then if you want to go all the way down to 26, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be one in them and I in them. Now, what Jesus does is he, I'm going to have to clear some space here. What Jesus does is he says, all right, I have taken your word and I have given it to the apostles. And then I'm not just praying for them, though. I'm praying for, look at how he says it, uh, verse 20, those who will believe in me through their word. So, this is Jesus, he gives his word to the apostles, then what's the deal with believers today? Well, we believe in him, but how do we understand him and how do we believe in him? Because of the word of the apostles. So, in other words, think about it this way, maybe this will help make it a little more concrete. How does, how does someone actually come to saving faith in Christ, or if you want to use an even bigger term, how does someone come to an appropriate fear of the Lord or a knowledge of God? Well, here's how it happens. The word of God is proclaimed to them, and through that word, that apostolic word, as it happens, through that apostolic word, they're united to Christ and come to a knowledge of God. So think about even your own life and Moments where the Lord drew you to himself. Maybe even at your initial conversion, if you remember that time. What happened was, I, I, I almost guarantee it. I don't know the circumstance. I don't know the setting. I don't know what was going on in your life. But here's what happened. What happened is, you encountered the apostolic word. So someone, uh, you heard someone read, or you read yourself. Um, you know, John 3.16, or Romans 3.23, or whatever it was. I don't know what it was. But it was an apostolic word that you read. In other words, Jesus didn't write that, but but by his spirit, the apostles wrote it. And, and through that, you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. You were united to him through faith. And, and, then, and then that is also an, another way of talking about coming to a knowledge of God. So there's this kind of unbroken chain. This is why when we 
share the gospel with someone or when we preach, we, we preach the Bible because uh, God the Holy Spirit has, has worked in these apostles. And so the apostolic word is what's used. It's called the word of Christ in, in Romans. And that word of Christ is what unites us to God. Uh, in Christ, in, in, through saving faith, and 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 all of this, you know, all of this links back to what we see in Isaiah fifty, because in Isaiah fifty, the the two things that characterize the coming servant are that he is the Word of God. He he's he's everything he says is from God. Now for us, that gets mediated through the apostles, but. But it's, it's still the word of Christ. And, and then the second thing, of course, is that as you, as you hear that word, and as you are united to him, as you follow that light, what you see is that his voluntary, vindicated suffering actually lies at the heart of, of all of it. And, and again, I'm not claiming that Isaiah 50 unpacks that completely. It doesn't. But when you put it together with Isaiah 53, it basically does. Um, it, it, it explains even the, the kind of uh, mechanism by which that suffering is uh, applied to, to people and why it's so central uh, because of the problem of sin. So, um, let me take a step back and say, uh, I know I've covered a lot of ground here, but... Um, Questions about this, or comments, or 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 connections, or anything like that. Go ahead, yeah. This is a minor thing, but um, you were talking about the Deuteronomy eighteen prophet being kind of always on. Could you? Can you? This is a friendly question, really. I hadn't heard that before. Can you like? How are you seeing that? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not seeing it in 18 just alone. Because Deuteronomy 18 could just be describing a prophet who always prophesies the truth, um, who's like Moses. Now, now uh, I'll say this. Um, I, I, I do think I could show you with pretty, pretty high certainty that, that in the Old Testament, they're very clear that that prophet hasn't arisen yet. So it's something more... So I'll get to the always-on thing in a second, but it's something more than Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Jonah. You know what I mean? Uh, they're not the prophet like Moses. And I think Chronicles ends up making that really clear to us, as does the ending of Deuteronomy. But, so, so it's, it's more than just a prophet, right? Now, that doesn't get you the whole way to what I said. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of combining what Deuteronomy 18 says with the description in Isaiah 50, where where the way he's described is, you know, he wakes up in the morning and he's heard the word of God and he and he goes. Um, or the description that you get in in Acts about his being this prophet and you should have listened to everything he said. So you know, it's a little bit of a, a um, drawing trying to draw out the implications of that. And then and then no doubt I'm also putting into that just the, the, the information that we're given about Jesus. And I think and I think theologically, and this isn't a textual argument per se, but theologically we'd say, yeah, everything Jesus said is the word of God, right? Um, 
So that's, but that's how I'm connecting the dots. You're, you're absolutely right. It's not, that's not spelled out in Deuteronomy 18. What is spelled out in Deuteronomy 18 is that this is something different than just a prophet. And then Isaiah 50, the morning and evening, and then, and then as it's revealed in Jesus. That's, that's what I, does that make sense? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I didn't mean to overstate what Deuteronomy 18 teaches us about this, but like I said, I don't think I, I want to understate how important Deuteronomy 18 is for the, uh, the rest of the Old Testament, the unfolding of the Old Testament. Um, other, other, other questions or comments along these lines? Okay, so then uh, we're getting close to the end of, um, of our time. But I want to just, well, let me, there's a couple directions we could go in. I, I think I think I know what I want to do. Um, what I, what two directions we could go in? One that I think you can actually do yourself, which is we could go through every New Testament passage that is either quote, quoting from or alluding to Isaiah fifty. And like I said, there are a lot. So, but I think your Bible can do that for you if you have a study Bible. It should have cross references and and because there are just a lot of quotations. But the the, the thing that I think might be more profitable because it sets us up better. Uh, for the week to come, is to show you how this then plays out as we go into Isaiah 51 and, and, and then the beginning of 52. Basically, 51 um, is a message of comfort. So 41 is a message of judgment to all the coastlands. 51 is a message of comfort to all the coastlands. Let me show you what I mean. Um, I'm going to read a couple verses for you. Verse 4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice as a light to all the peoples. So basically, it's going to the Gentiles. Go down to verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings so it, it's he's giving this message of comfort to all these people who have come to know him through the light that he's given so he gives a light through his people we'll, we'll, we'll say through you know these people of jerusalem he's given a light and that light now is going off into all the nations and and so that other people out here are, are coming to a heart knowledge of the law. Heart knowledge of the law. And, and, and that's, that's the picture. And so all of you should be comforted if you're either among these people in Jerusalem who are beneficiaries of the light that comes from Jerusalem or people who at the ends of the earth in your heart now know the law because of this. Now again, so many implications we could tease out from this, but let me just give you one to sort of get your spur your thinking. When Jesus is about to ascend um, after his resurrection and, and his ministry to his apostles in Jerusalem, he says, wait here in Jerusalem. You've got to stay here. Stay in Jerusalem. And because what's going to happen is uh, you're going to be my witnesses, and it's going to start in Jerusalem, and it's going to go to Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria, and then it's going to the ends of the earth. 
And, and this comfort passage is really to those who have had this light which started in Jerusalem go to the ends of the earth. And they're going to enjoy everlasting um, singing. And you're, you know, you, those, these people shouldn't be afraid of those who mock them or criticize them. Um, because you're going to receive comfort from the Lord. Um, I'm going to have to sort of skip through some things, but um, then then we'll get to uh, 52, and the beginning of 52 uh, says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there, there shall no more come un- into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. In other words, you're going to be totally purified, And then we get to this, verse 7 of Isaiah 52, which should be very familiar to you because Paul uses it all the time. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So basically what 51 and 52 talk about is this day of comfort and and as this day of comfort moves closer, who are the people who are uh, whose feet are beautiful? Well, they're the ones who proclaim the good news to all those uh, to the ends of the earth. Which is why Paul grabs this and talks about it in terms of the proclamation of the gospel. How are they to hear unless unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news quoting from Isaiah 52. So, because God is going to do this great work of restoration, starting in Jerusalem, by his servant, who is a proclaimer of the word, and who is ultimately going to suffer, um, then, then in the meantime, as we await this comfort, as we await this day of final restoration, which is where we are right now, as we await this day of restoration and final renewal, uh, what do we do? We go out and we proclaim this good news that of what God has done in and through his son, in and through the servant. And, and we proclaim that to all nations and because it's good news for them as well. They can be among those who, while not in Jerusalem, have God's law in their hearts uh, because of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Again, there's only one more piece of the puzzle to fit in then. Uh, incidentally, I, I said way at the beginning when we started Isaiah 40, this, this section, Isaiah 40 to 55, is quoted extensively, particularly by Paul, as he explains his missionary enterprise. And you can see why. Because this is where it takes you. Uh, the, the, the obligation now is to proclaim the good news. Now, there's one missing piece. Uh, that we have, that we kind of know already intuitively, but we haven't actually covered in Isaiah. Isaiah hasn't actually preached this sermon yet to us, but he's about to. And that is okay. We get the servant and the word and the preachers, but and the ends of the earth. But how's where does the suffering fit in? Why is that so important? It seems out of place in Isaiah fifty, um, and it seems out of place to rejoice in that and to say. You know, this is good news about the suffering servant. Why is it such good news? And 52 and 53 comes right here at the end and explains why it's such good news. Because ultimately the problem is sin. And, and our need for 
reconciliation to God because of our sin. And what it turns out is the servant uniquely um, takes the sin and the punishment for the sin upon himself so that we get healed as a result of him uh, bearing our, our suffering. Let's, let's, we'll grab time and pray. Father, thank you for the time that you've given us. And uh, what a joy it is to meditate on these things. And yet, as we do, we know that we're just kind of scratching the surface of them. So please uh, enable us to continue to meditate on your word, to reflect upon it, even to worship you in light of it in the next hour. Be with us, we ask in Christ's name.